0: You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show.
1: Happy Wednesday, beautiful country. Lots cooking. How's everyone doing today? There is so much going on. We got a lot on the big show today. Uh, First of all, thank you yesterday for many of you who texted me at 71010 about the haunted house. If you didn't miss that You didn't hear that segment when we spoke to the woman who spent a million and a half dollars to buy the house in Rhode Island that was featured in the horror movie, which I have not seen, will never see, called The Conjuring, and she bought it and she's living in it and she knows it's haunted and she alleges that there's good spirits, not just murderous spirits like the horror movie, and she's heard the spirits or the ghosts or the, it was bugged me all night. Many of you texted me at 71010 about it. And I was talking to Sam, the producer this morning, about it. And I said, Hey, Sam, were you creeped out last night about our segment yesterday about the Conjuring House in Rhode Island? And why would you buy it? Because I would never sleep in that thing for like millions of dollars. And Sam said to me, I wouldn't either. And then I said to Sam, Here's what I don't understand. The woman who bought it said to us, Well, hang on. You have to understand that not all spirits are malevolent spirits. There are good spirits. And we both said to ourselves, yes, but if you, first of all, if you believe that you can, in spirits haunting a house, it goes to reason that if there are good ones, there are bad ones. And then she said to us, yeah, but there are more good ones than bad ones. To which we said, you know, I have an alarm system and a lock on my door. There's probably more good people where I live than bad people. But I put a lock on my door for the few bad people. Because I don't want them in the house. Which, by the way, goes for the spirits. I don't... Anyway, I was haunted by that whole interview. And that's why today we're not going to talk about haunted houses. Because it freaks me out. But not everything is what it seems. Which is the theme yesterday about the haunted house. This house is not what it seems. It's haunted. Today... I'm haunted by things that aren't what they seem. And that is the theme of our show today. Things are not what you think they would be. Things do not make sense. Things that on the surface you think, aha, I know what that means. When you dig underneath it, you will find that is not true at all. And let's start with the biggest news, which is the Ontario election. Look. I spoke to the pollster Nick Nanos yesterday, and he said the number one issue for uh, people of Ontario is health care. By far, polls ahead of everything. People care about health care. OK. Then affordability. OK. And I said to him, but Nick, I don't understand this. All the polls, yours and everybody's poll, shows that Andrea Horvath, the leader of the NDP, polls way ahead of the Conservatives and the Liberals when it comes to health care. And yet, she's in third place. I don't get it. When it comes to affordability, that should be a sword issue for the NDP or the liberals. And yet it looks like Doug Ford. And we're going to hear new polls in a minute. We've got David Coletto coming up with brand new numbers, shiny new numbers, the last numbers before the election are coming. So hang in there. We're going to test this theory. I haven't seen the numbers yet. You haven't heard the numbers yet. David Coletto is coming up with the new numbers. And again, I haven't seen them because they're they're literally fresh out of the oven. The abacus oven. And Nanos is going to have fresh numbers again this afternoon, so these are the last numbers before. But you'd think... And and the numbers are probably going to show that Doug Ford's going to romp here. He's got 63 seats. I think he's going to go plus 70, maybe plus 80 seats. Like, I think there's going to be a, a huge majority for the PCs in Ontario. That Doug Ford's going to become a, a, a massive majority premier. And you think to yourself... Well, that doesn't make sense. Incumbents are usually punished by reality. Healthcare, if that's the number one concern, why would you give it to Doug Ford? He had a terrible pandemic. He's fought with the nurses. That Andrew Horvath pulls ahead. Not what it seems. People don't care. Andrew Horvath missed opportunity, Nick says. Nick says she's missed her opportunity to make that the issue. Or maybe people didn't care. Doesn't make sense. Not what it seems. The Ontario election, when you think inflation, the Bank of Canada today, hoisted its key interest rate by 50 basis points, half a percent. Your mortgage just got more expensive. Things just got worse for you today. Things got worse. Inflation, high. Interest rates, growing. Affordability, down. Houses, still unaffordable. And yet, the incumbent in the largest province in the country, Doug Ford, is going to not just waltz to victory, he's going to moonwalk to victory. Doesn't Normally, you're punished by that. He's not going to be. I think this is in a remarkable moment. I think Ford's campaign has been brilliantly run. I think it's been run because he's not talked about specific issues. He's barely done interviews. They've just run a campaign based on likability and vague statements like get it done the 10 billion dollar 413 highway which doesn't make any sense in terms of induced demand if you're trying to fight climate if you're trying to reduce traffic if you're trying to invest in in public transit putting a, a new highway we we know the concept of induced demand when you have another road more you're you're asking people to drive more So it's not like that's going to alleviate traffic. It's going to create just more traffic. That's what the concept of induced demand is. That's a $10 billion issue that if most people in Ontario think, well, healthcare is the number one issue, put the $10 billion into healthcare. No. And it's working. Today we'll talk about drugs and guns. You think on the surface, if you've got an addiction problem, on the surface you think we should take drugs away from addicts. Access, access to drugs must induce people to take drugs, induced demand, right? Well, not what it seems. In British Columbia, the, the premier, the mayors of the big cities, the police chiefs have been begging the government for a legal exemption to allow them to decriminalize small possession of illicit drugs. From MDMA, met, methamphetamines, methamphetamines, opioids, fentanyl, cocaine. And yeah, yesterday they got it after years of lobbying. 2.5 grams and down. There it is. Why? Because that will reduce the harm because addicts, they say, let's stop criminalizing it. Treat it as a health issue. On the surface, it doesn't make sense. But when you dig into the numbers, it's going to save lives. It's the smart thing to do. Who knew? On the surface, you think, no, let's crush the drugs. In reality, you got to decriminalize them. The numbers don't lie. That It actually makes sense. It actually makes sense. Things are not what they seem. What you think is going to happen on the surface doesn't seem to happen. Incumbents, you think, how can they win in a time of inflation, in a time of affordability crisis? In the time of healthcare, care, when law, there's, there's surgical backlogs that are months and months long, when there's frustration and unhappiness and affordability crisis and a slow economy. This is box office poison for incumbents. You think? On the last day of campaigning, we'll find out. Doug Ford says, not for me. And then we're going to talk to the minister in charge of the decriminalizing on these drugs. And I'll ask you to weigh in on that. Because if they're going to decriminalize them in British Columbia for small possession of illicit drugs because they believe and they have the data, this is going to save lives because we've got an opioid epidemic that's killing Canadians. All that's true. Well, if it's going to save lives in B.C., why not make it national? But they're not going to do it. Well, I don't understand politics. If, if you have a solution that works over here Like, you know, if you have a vaccine that works on mice and works on a test group of humans, what do you do? You give it to everybody. But they're not doing that yet. They're going to wait till 2023 to start it and then do it for three years and see what's happening. So they're going to test it out. We'll talk to the minister about that. But I'm going to take a break. And fresh from the oven... The final numbers, the abacus data poll, the final numbers of the Ontario election will be revealed. Who's ahead? Who's behind? Who will be the official opposition? That's next. Last day of the campaign in Ontario, and I don't think this is going to be a close one, but the good news is we have fresh new numbers, piping hot, smelling like fresh bread out of the abacus polling data oven, and the baker himself is here, uh, David Coletto, um, with new numbers from Ontario. This will be the last poll before, um, I mean, look, a million Ontarians have already voted, so early voting always is, is remarkable, but he's got new numbers. David, how are you? I'm well, Evan. How you doing? This doesn't look like a close one. Give, give us what the latest batch from uh, the Abacus data says. Yeah, it's not really
2: at all. We finished the survey this morning, uh, interviewed for 1,500 uh, eligible voters, and we've got the PCs, our final numbers, PCs 40, Liberal 27, NDP 22, Green 4, and the New Blue Party 4, and others at 3%. So a 13-point lead for the PCs, more or less holding the share of the votes in the last election. The Liberals ahead of the NDP, but neither of them um, anywhere close to bringing down the PCs. And it looks like another, if this holds till tomorrow, another majority PC government.
1: Okay. Uh, this is David Coletta from Abacus. Okay. Can we just break that down? Because there's one, do you break this down into voter efficiency and to seat translation?
2: We don't. We, we we don't play that game. but. My sense is that if, the, if these are the kind of numbers, you know, the Tories could be, you know, in the 80-seat range um, pretty evenly. And, I, I, and whether the, the Liberals or the New Democrats form official opposition, I think, remains to be seen. I think that might be too close to call in, in my mind. But I don't do our own modeling on that.
1: I just want people to understand when David Coletto says the 80-seat range, they're at 63 seats right now. Um, That's massive. Can you tell us what's driving this election? What happened here? Because I opened the show and I've been studying politics for a w- many decades. And, David, I don't understand this. I, I still, this is maybe why I love it so much. It's, it continues to bedevil me. Um, you've got healthcare trending as the most important issue. And yet, and it's important for Andrea Horvath, but hasn't made a dent in her popularity. She's gone down, not up. Mm-hmm. Um, Doug Ford had a particularly, didn't have a good pandemic, uh, hasn't been good on health care, wait times are up for surgeries, inflation's up, affordability's up, um, unhappiness is up, and yet he's cry, he, none of these things seem to touch him. So can you explain that to me, what, what's going on, what dynamic is going on here?
2: Well, I think there's there's a few things. First is, it is rare in our history in Ontario to defeat a government, a majority government effort's first term. It's happened, right? Bob Ray learned full well what happens, but... it it doesn't always happen and it's rare. So, I mean, just that context is important. But number two is, you know, when we ask people, this is a question we asked in this survey, over the past four years, do you feel Doug Ford has been a great premier, a good premier, an okay premier, a bad premier, a horrible premier? Majority of Ontarians say good or okay, right? 31% say bad or horrible. And so in the context of usually elections are about the leaders. And in this case about, you know, the incumbent premier is the thing that probably is driving most people's feelings. Not if, if you're the opposition parties right now, the liberals of the NDP, not enough people think Doug Ford has been a bad or terrible premier and a sufficient number of people say, eh, he's done okay. Right. He didn't do the best job on the pandemic, but in our survey, only 30% of people said they're less likely to vote PC mm. because of how the government handled the so pandemic. Does,
1: but so do issues matter? I mean, again, you know, as I've seen it, you, you've done polling for a long time, David. You know, when inflation is high, it hurts the government. When affordability crises are there, when groceries are up, housing's up, um, gas is up, bad for an incumbent. When the economy slows down, bad for an incumbent. When surgical wait times are in health care, bad for the incumbent. And, and so I, that's all true, and yet people say, you know, he's done a pretty good job. Is it just that his new brand, that he's likable, his campaign has been good, the opposition's been weak, or it's just that, you know, there's a liberal government in, uh, in Ottawa, and classically when that happens, Ontarians would like a balance, and they have a progressive conservative government?
2: I think that that could be part of it. Um, although it, it's not as if Justin Trudeau is deeply unpopular in Ontario, and this is a rejection of him either. If, if this happens tomorrow, if, if Doug Ford wins such a big majority, I think it's a mix of everything you just said there. It's it's yes, people recognize that there are some big problems in this province. Um, they aren't necessarily fearful that Doug Ford will make them any worse if he gets reelected, which I think is a failure of the opposition party's um, campaigns in this. Uh, but you know, election is a choice, um, and I always like to to, to to use the analogy of going into a restaurant um, and the you know the, the server gives you a, a menu and you have to choose from that. You can't ask for whatever right. it is you want. I think voters looked at this menu and said, yeah, Doug Ford's not perfect, but nothing uh, that the Liberals or the New Democrats, Ms. Horvath or Mr. Del Duca were offering mm-hmm. is likely going to be any better. And mm-hmm. for those that didn't want Doug Ford, didn't want to have Doug Ford for dinner, they couldn't agree on what, you know, around yeah. table what else they wanted. And so when you look at those who definitely want to change in government, that's half of Ontarians say, I definitely want Doug Ford out. They split almost evenly between the liberals and the New Democrats. And that is a big part of the story as well. We couldn't, those who wanted change couldn't decide which version right. they wanted and, so the, the progressive
1: vote pretty. split matters. The progressive vote split is big. Cost of living, housing, affordability, health care, taxes, all those top the, the issues, but there's no kind of um, opposition. Now, what about the opposition? Does First of all, I know you don't track seats, but look, if Andrea Horvath doesn't win, she's done. We know that. You're not going five times with the same leader when you can't win. Uh, and, and maybe she does worse than last time, which is always fatal for a leader. But, um, I guess the race is going to be for official opposition. And and, and, and if Del, Del Duca may not even get it, he may not even win his seat. I mean, it's a fascinating split on the other side, isn't it?
2: It is. And, you know, I, I, I like the work that, that 338 Canada does. It's a great website if you want to look at sort of the seat projections. And, and you know, based on the polls that are available right now, um, you know, it's close as to whether the Liberals or the NDP are going to form official opposition. So I agree with you on, on Ms. Miss, Miss, Miss Horvath. She had her opportunity as leader of the opposition to make a breakthrough. She has not done that. Um, and Mr. Del Duca, I, you know, from what I'm hearing anecdotally from people, even people who are living in, in Vaughan Woodbridge where he represents, or he's trying to represent, that he's not likely going to win that riding. So it's, <laughs> the Liberals come third, and... He doesn't win. How can he survive? I guess is going to be a big, Huge. big question for for his his team as well.
1: I mean, and then you know, imagine Doug Ford, a colossus, bestride on Ontario. Right? He wins a bigger majority, and he knocks out Andrea Horvath. Could knock out Mister Del Duca. Um, what the other interesting thing is to watch, um, and I just love that part of the abacus. As I talked to you, uh, David Coletta, a part of your poll that talks about the that that just the desire for change is fifty percent but and yet there's just no there's a split for that desire so it doesn't really sort of amount to anything I, are you getting any sense of even in places like Toronto areas that the PCs could break through in bigger areas
2: well in our poll again smaller sample sizes once we get into the regional breakouts we still have the PCs ahead even in metro Toronto and and there was a Léger poll out just before ours that that said the same thing so we are seeing perhaps some signals that the Tories are are going to hold their vote and maybe even gain in places they typically don't do well in, right? They're, they're they're trying to win seats in Windsor, which is an NDP stronghold. They're trying to win seats in Niagara and in Toronto. Um, you know, Doug Ford's cousin um, is running in an NDP-held seat, and, and there's talk he could win it. So they have been on full offense mode, uh, the progressive conservative campaign. And they're not like, they may lose some seats to the Liberals in some you know, suburban parts right. of, of Ottawa, even maybe in 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 Toronto in and around Toronto, but the Tories look like they're gonna gain as many from the New mm. Democrats. And so this swing, like what, the most fascinating thing in this campaign for me, Evan, is the fact that when we ask union members how they're going to vote or how they voted, among private sector union members, Doug Ford wins by almost double digits. And he's slightly ahead among public sector workers. And so the whole coup that he's had in getting those private sector unions to endorse the PCs is not the reason he's going to get reelected, but is a is a signal to other voters that well, if the unions are supporting him, maybe I shouldn't be afraid. Yeah, and amazing. that that is
1: that good. is the story a huge story and that they're pulling ahead on key issues. David Coletto, great new numbers from Abacus Data it will be fascinating tomorrow. Thank you, David. Lots more coming up next. Stay with us.
0: where accountability is key. This is Evan Solomon on the iHeart Radio Talk
1: Network. So Canada yesterday did something no other jurisdiction in North America has ever done. It decriminalized small amounts of illicit drugs for 3 years. That's right. Canada, the federal government granted BC an exemption. That's what they've been looking for. An exemption So they could decriminalize possession of small amounts of illicit drugs like cocaine, methamphetamines, opioids, MDMA, fentanyl. So if you possess up to 2.5 grams. Now, actually, B.C. wanted the threshold to be four and a half grams, but the federal government said we're going to do it for two and a half grams. You are not going to have be arrested and your drugs will not be seized. It doesn't mean these are legalized, but they won't be seized. Now, the reason they've done this, and BC, the, the, the premier, the mayor, I spoke to the mayor, and the police chiefs have all said, we need this because five people died of overdoses every single year, every single day last year. Five a day, according to the B.C. coroner report that came out in March. And so this, they say, will save lives, because if you take drugs away from people, they'll, they'll do more dangerous things, and we need a cleaner supply. But if you're going to exempt drugs in B.C., Why not across the country? By the way, today there's a bill in the House, Bill C-216, an NDP bill, private members bill that wants to do just that. The federal government is not going to back it. So I spoke to the Mental Health and Addictions Minister, Carolyn Bennett, and I said 26,600-plus Canadians died from opioid-related overdoses in 2016 to 2021. B.C. wants an exemption. If you're going to grant an exemption, uh, you know, why did it take so long to grant them this exemption after they've asked for this for years?
3: Well, thank you, and I, I mean, I think this is a this is a huge day in terms of really the um, for Canada. It's unique. It's it's as the we've all known. We needed bold action and significant policy change on harm reduction, and this is this is the first step to reducing the stigma for people using drugs while we put in place all of the other things that we know work in terms of safe consumption safer supply naloxone um, treatment um this is this is uh, really really important and particularly in reducing the stigma because people because people were being charged for having small amounts of drugs they they There was shame involved and they weren't feeling comfortable seeking help. So this is one of many of the uh, of the whole spectrum of approaches to to stopping the, the these deaths and 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 dealing head on with the opioid crisis. But B.C. declared this a public emergency
1: six years ago. The chief coroner there said five people die every day. Okay, I understand that. But Health Canada said Ontario had 9,598 deaths from 2016 to 2021, Alberta 5,040 deaths. You, you, the Yukon, Saskatchewan. I guess the question is, if you're going to um, finally listen to the request for uh, from from British Columbia to get this exemption, why not just make this a national exemption, change the criminal code, and and decriminalize these um, illicit drugs? across the board?
3: So what's happening, the the drugs will still be illegal. The people using drugs will not be charged. And so this is very important that we understand this is not legalizing the substance. It's making sure that the people using drugs are no longer charged and their drugs are not confiscated. In order to do this properly, the reason that we need this implementation plan to put in place all of the indicators all of the measurements public safety as well as public health to make sure that people are being properly diverted from the criminal justice system to the health and social services that means that you have to do it in partnership with jurisdictions they we need to, to see that the health and social services for people using drugs are, are being ramped up as as they have here in British Columbia, that the law enforcement are being trained and educated to right. deal with people using drugs differently. And so this is a, a, a very complex matter. But you don't there's have to, one, I mean, I understand that there's an exemption
1: and there's a request, but there is, as you know, Uh, there is a bill before the house bill c216 a private members bill from the ndp that is called the act to amend the control drugs and substances act and expunge certain drug related convictions their point is if we really believe in a health-based approach to substance use we can amend right now the controlled drugs and substances act get it done on a national level not on a regional level what's the problem with that
3: the problem is that the health and social services and and law enforcement and all of the things that it would take for that to be successful and for there not to be on un- untoward consequences um is is not in place and in that bill there's no plan or implementation or plan really to to be working with the jurisdictions that actually would make sure that it was successful so this this uh, um, exemption here in british columbia is the way to go because we will have that kind of constant monitoring and evaluation and be able to to make sure that that there are no untoward consequences in public health or public safety and uh, and this is exciting and and it's the prudent way to go forward to make sure that that everything's in
1: place but if five people are dying a day and this doesn't come into effect until january 31st 2023 And you genuinely believe that this is going to save lives. Why not do it sooner?
3: Kevin, this is just one of many steps. And we see that, that, that the other things we are doing are beginning to work in terms of having a regulated supply of the drugs people use. Safe consumption sites, naloxone. All of these things are are in place uh, across the country, but we are we are seeing that uh, that this is uh, we, today we added another eleven point seven eight million dollars to the to the you know um, safe supplies, safe consumption, all of those uh, approaches, and uh, this is one decriminalization is one of that whole spectrum of interventions that we are are doing and i think evan you and you know your your viewers will know that vancouver particularly and and the british province of british columbia have been leaders in putting in place all of these innovative approaches and in in order to save lives So So, so all of the other parts of canada like toronto edmonton um saskatoon montreal they are all looking at this model okay and, and are
1: you is the federal government talking to those jurisdictions in other words absolutely
3: oh you yeah, are so I could know, could it happen in another jurisdiction soon absolutely and okay. you know we've received the the proposal from the board of health in toronto we understand there's one forthcoming from montreal and edmonton the the Police in Saskatoon, and so this is a an approach that uh, really, again, is just one of many things we're doing in terms of harm reduction um, to be able to to save lives and reduce the stigma. Because as as Minister Malcolm said, and 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 Bonnie Henry said, people are using alone and dying alone because of the stigma, yeah. and so that's why we. We have added this um, to the B.C. approach and uh, and we are very, very, it's a very important, bold and significant policy shift uh, for Canada. But we need to make sure we're doing it properly and safely.
1: That's Dr. Carolyn Bennett, the min- the minister in charge of this. Now, I'm going to take your texts and calls on this. Should you support the exemption from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act of, of- People carrying two and a half grams or, or less of fentanyl, cocaine, methamphetamines to deal with the opioid crisis. 1-800, oh, sorry, 1-855-633-1010, 1-855-633-1010, or 71010. Should this exemption, though, be extended nationally? Do you not like it? Right now, as we're speaking, Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the NDP, is literally having a press conference saying, just what I asked the minister, support our bill and make this national. What do you think? Text me 10, 7101018556331010. 10, 10, 10. We'll talk about decriminalizing next.
0: Strong views, powerful opinions. The Evan Solomon Show continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: The first place in North America to decriminalize small amounts, small possession of illicit drugs like fentanyl, opioids, cocaine, methamphetamines, MDMA, British Columbia. They have been asking for an exemption from laws that criminalize drug possession for years to deal with the epidemic that is the opioid crisis. And I've asked you, do you support that? Do you agree that it should be national? They could they could nationally do this. There's an act, act a private member's bill from the NDP out today. The, the government's already said to me they're not going to support it. They say, oh, we're not ready for that. What do you think? Should the exemption be extended nationally? Should drugs be decriminalized across Canada? Small amounts of them. one 633 1010 or 71010. Now, I spoke to the mayor of um, Vancouver, Kennedy Stewart, about this yesterday. He's long called for this. And, and I'll just show you what he... First, all, I'm going to play you as I wait for your calls here. What he said, said to me, what's driving this? It's the overdoses that he has to deal with every day. Listen. Do we have this uh, clip of Kennedy Stewart here? Chris? All right. Uh, maybe you don't. He said, my staff sends me numbers of people who have died of overdose in the previous week. It was nine people. 180 people saved by responders. The week before, 12 people. The previous week, 10. Week after week after week. He told me he almost cried. He almost cried, he said, when he found out that the government was going to provide this exemption. Because he believes, and the chief of police, and the mayor, I mean, and the and other mayors, that this is how important this is. What do you think about this? Uh, I've got, uh, who do I have on the line here? um dylan what's up
4: hey evan i hope you can hear me okay it was pretty staticky when i was on hold there but uh no this is a terrible idea look i don't want to see people dying either but uh, this is not the answer um and if you have any doubt about the disingenuousness of this legislation and what their their move to decriminalize it they never talk about cracking down on the drug dealers themselves they never talk about stopping uh, the actual supply. It's all, you know. The laws are so weak; they don't really care. And you know, another thing is too—they never talk about. Um, okay, like I, I don't want to see people dying, but they never talk about um, where these people, these addicts, are getting their money from. And it's one of three places: they're either stealing, they're prostituting themselves,
1: yes, or they they're—they t- talk about it all the time. But can, can I just say something? Well,
4: no, they don't. I don't think because uh, well, no. again, the, the Vancouver, the Lower East Side, where this, where this problem, where this epidemic is sort of the ground zero of the epidemic here. I mean, it's been like that for 20, 30 years, you know what I mean? And, and again, uh, they never— Have you ever uh, been, there? Really I, I, I've been there? I've been there. I, I, right.
1: I don't know if you've ever been there and, and seen it. Or, and I don't know if you've ever ridden with the drug squad I have. Let me let me just push back a bit on you because because the tough love thing— and the war on drugs. Look, you got to crack down on the dealers, and they're trying to. But the war on drugs is expensive and doesn't work. Our prison systems have overloaded, and and the deaths have gone up. And and we do talk about that. And punishment is. This is what we've basically well, been. We've been just said. We've been criminalizing this for years. That has been the strategy.
4: It's a um, revolving door system, though, Evan. They, they just end up back oh. out in the street. Like, if, if people are caught with fentanyl at this point, they should be facing basically life in prison, okay? Maybe wow, but that wait, would, wait, what about an addict? Enough, do you, do you want to
1: put an addict in prison for life? Not or... addicts. No, no, no. Let,
4: let me say this, Evan. Look, I don't want to see people just being incarcerated, okay? I, want, I okay. want them to get the help that they need. And if you, I don't know if you've ever heard of Jesse Wente. He's a he's oh, I know, Je- he's I know like, Jesse, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he wrote a book, and, I mean, uh, a central theme of that was he said the best thing—he was an addict, for anyone out there who doesn't know— um, and the best thing that ever happened to him was it—he uh, was arrested and went through the system, and he got help. He got the help that he needed. And the thing is, in our system, the only way you can uh, you can tell an adult what to do is if they are uh, legally found criminal because of something, and then then you can force them into treatment and stuff like that. But but just to water down our laws and 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 destroy these communities where this where this is a
5: right. problem again.
1: Okay. okay, I appreciate the call. Let let me just and, and look, many police. Drug counselors disagree with you, and here's why: one, treating addicts like it's a health, not a crime, you can't incarcerate them because um, we have to. I think a much more expensive thing to do, sadly, is treatment. Treatment's expensive, but uh, you're right. People, there's no no one's hiding the fact that if you take drugs away, small, if you take you know five grams, four grams away from a drug addict, like they're doing now, they're going to do anything to get it. They will steal. They will. I've, I've done many documentaries. When people are addicted, they it's like as an addict once told me, it was imagine pouring gasoline on your skin and lighting yourself on fire. That's what it feels like to have the craving. It's that bad. And the only thing that feels like you can douse it out is another hit. So you will do anything for it. And then, then 15 minutes later, you need it again. And this is the problem. And this is why decriminalizing allows police, when they see an addict of two and a half grams, is not to lock them up. Yeah, sure, you got to lock up the dealers. I get that. No one's denying that. But it's the it's the addicts who are dying alone, who are doing dangerous things to get their hit and their fix. That is really what this is about. And, Dylan, I appreciate this. I don't think, though, I do think that there's a there's a punishment side for the dealers that we have to deal with. But I think this is the health side. And I don't know why you can't do both. Jeff, go ahead.
6: Hi. I think it's a big mistake. It's like we would just want to cut out the middleman and give the tax money to base it directly to the source. And I'd just like to read a, a National Post headline from Sabrina Mato. says, liberals allow a narco state to fester under their noses. Officials would rather paint a picture of isolated, struggling addicts than a full-blown narco state where dirty money has infiltrated everything from real estate to banking.
1: I mean, right, I'm not, I'm so you're, you're saying, I'm trying to follow the puck here, I know, I know the article. What, but you're saying yeah. that it's true. We have organized crime in Canada, and we have to crack down on organized crime. But I'm just trying. But but, but and, we're not and th-
6: cracking down on it. Some of the people who are developers are are money launderers. They've made their billions of dollars through money laundering. I
1: understand that, but but let's let's focus things. on the on the issue.
6: developers and and contributing to political parties.
1: But but are you That's saying? But are you thought. saying decriminalizing two and a half grams for possession is actually part of the problem? Like, what do you do with the addicts? What are you going to do when an addict has two and a half grams of cocaine on them? Do you want to arrest them? I'm asking. They're, no, they're an it's Like the
6: previous caller said, I don't think it's compassionate at all to let people destroy themselves or to assist them in destroying themselves.
1: So what do you do with it? What do you do with an addict on the street? I'm asking you. What's the solution? You've got addictions running wild. You've got fentanyl addictions, fentanyl deaths every day. What are you going to do for those those people on, on that side of the equation? I get it. Let's. We all hate the drug dealers. Or they're murderers. But what do you but do with no, these addicts?
6: It goes beyond just street-level drug dealers. These people are now legitimate business people. I
1: okay, could, but so I'm asking you about what do you do and, for small and, possession? This is small. We're talking about two and a half grams. Small well, personal use possession. What do you do? Should the police arrest those people? Should they take those drugs away? This law they, would say they they allow them to keep the drugs, uh, the two they, and a half grams.
6: They need to be either cleaned up or. or or put somewhere that we can't allow to keep, because because as long as there's people that are going to use, there's that's just going to keep on coming in. The problem will never stop, and it'll just be a continuous problem.
1: Of, uh, uh, um, yeah, Jeff, Jeff, I appreciate that, uh, but I don't think that's you can't. Uh, uh, pre- thanks for the call. And look, I agree. this is why I started the show saying on one thing it doesn't make sense to to let people who are addicts have drugs. On the other hand, I've been on the street with these folks uh, and covered this for a long time. Addicts are dying. People are dying. Sons, daughters. We had two moms on this program whose kids both died of an addiction. They said they were on the other side. Now they realize the scale of addiction and why decriminalizing small amounts. We're talking about two and a half grams. Not taking the drugs away will save lives. But I tell you, this is a very contentious issue. And I'm glad we're getting these discussions. I think we have to have more discussions like this. Um, we're going to get inside the war room next. We're going to talk about the Ontario election and this next.
0: You're listening to the iHeart Radio Talk Network, and this is the Evan Solomon Show.
1: Last day of the Ontario election, time to gather the war room.
4: Let me be perfectly clear. Putting out misinformation. And We hear that. Misleading politics. It's really important here. Spreading it online. Unequivocally.
0: The war room.
1: Oh, not much to talk about. Just an Ontario election, a national handgun freeze, and decriminalizing small amounts of illicit drugs. But that's why we have Tim Powers, the chairman of SUMA Strategies, and the Managing Director of Abacus Data, David Mosscrop joins us today, contributing columnist for the Washington Post, based here in Ottawa. What a lucky fellow. He's probably getting isolation pay. And uh, <laughs> Sharon Carr, former Deputy Chief of Staff, to Bill Morneau. Recall him, former Finance Minister Sharon Tim David. Welcome aboard.
7: Good to be here.
1: Let's start with the Ontario election. By the way, can we uh, get some enthusiasm there, Timmy? Let's go, buddy. Let's uh, get, sip that coffee. The Ontario
7: pal. election, Evan. Yeah, you, wait, <laughs> you have to wake me up. Sorry. Yawn, yeah, well, yawn. it is a
1: sleepy election. Like, look, is, he's he. Doug Ford looks like he's happily rolling to a majority. What do you make of the campaign, and and, and what are you learning from this uh, remarkable kind of PC you know, steady steady roll to victory? <laughs>
7: I mean, he probably didn't even have to show up at all. And some would argue he hasn't over the last 28 days. I, I mean, it's astonishing. You were talking to my colleague, David Coletto, a moment ago, and uh, Abacus has the uh, Ford Tories with a 13-point lead. Uh, it, it just it, it floors me, Evan, with everything you've been talking about, everything that's going on in this province, inflation and uh, gun violence. We're going to talk about all of that, that. There's just no pulse when it comes to changing the course of things, and that has worked well for Doug Ford. Maybe we're all fatigued, maybe we're all done, uh, and we're just burned out, and Ford has read the mood of the public very well. Final point I'd make is, and it's not to be too unkind to Mr. Del Duca and Ms. Horvath, but his you know his opponents have just never been able to get any traction. So he's had the strangely the best set of circumstances he mm. could ask for in a re-election campaign.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's David, I'll go to you. Uh, may, maybe he's playing against the Washington Wizards, and maybe you're from the Washington Post, so you can you <laughs> can figure that one out. But 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 what do you make of this, David? Because it's uh, it's it's kind of a remarkable a turn of events where where inflation hasn't hit, uh, healthcare hasn't hit, all these issues, affordability, all of them are going the wrong direction and the incumbent is going the right direction.
8: Yeah, and I mean, one thing to note is that uh, Ontario somewhat like the federal government and the liberals right it, it was tory for the vast majority of the last century we have sort of presentism bias because the liberals are in power for you know over a decade recently but i think people are still actually shook up about that there's a lot of of effort trying to paint del duca as as win. in fact there's a lot of there's some effort to paint horvath as bob ray so you know to some extent i think voters are looking with some trepidation at del duca and horvath and saying you know we're just not ready to give them another chance we're not tired of ford yet our material interests are more or less met but it's worth also noting that a a majority of voters prefer a government other than the pc right we've got an electoral system that's going to hand doug ford a majority government with say 36 37 percent of the vote so still most people prefer someone else but look it happens with the federal liberals all the time and ford's the beneficiary of it provincially and you know them's the breaks.
1: Then the break. Sharon, uh, w- what do you what do you make of, A, what's driving this campaign? And then there may be the battle for second place. Uh, Stephen Del Duca fighting for his own seat in uh, um, Woodbridge-Vaughn area. You've got uh, maybe he leaps to become the official opposition or not. W- what do you believe is driving all this?
9: Listen, I think that, for one, I think basically what my colleagues here have said. Everyone's really fatigued. This has been a really, like unimpressive, kind of boring election. We've come out of COVID. We've come out of lockdown. We've come out of all these crazy things that are happening in the world. And the Doug Ford we're seeing today is not the same Doug Ford we saw in the last election or, quite frankly, even back in the mayoral election when he ran against Tory. He's kind of, I would say, softened up. And maybe it's just because he's surrounded himself with different people, but he's not the same Doug Ford. So I think people are kind of going for the devil you know versus the devil you don't. and And it doesn't help that his opposition um leader colleagues are not necessarily as i would say exciting
1: or <laughs> just I mean, say I mean, it sharon I mean, listen i'm
9: trying not to piss any of my 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 friends right. and former colleagues off but what i would say is i just there's there's a lack of inspiration i would say um and there's a lack of like i would say there's there's no warm and fuzzies. it's all pretty kind of boring so right now doug just looks like the guy who's like the man of the people and everyone else just looks like they're chasing their tails.
1: Yeah, Boring used to work, Tim, in Ontario under Bill Davis. But it was boring once you get power. Not boring once you're trying to get power. <laughs> uh, but I maybe it is that. Like, maybe Sharon and David are saying the same thing that you you are, Tim. Which is you know they people look out on the horizon and yeah, interest rates are rising. But then they see monkeypox and they're like, all right, you know what? Things could be worse out there. Uh, we're just gonna we're gonna stick with this. I guess what happens then if if you're in the NDP. And you're in the liberals, and you and this is not a change election. In, in the end, what what do you got to look in the mirror and see?
7: Well, but there's something else there too. I want to pick up just blending what you said with what Sharon said. I think the transformation that Ford made uh, two years ago and and got in the troubles he managed to navigate himself through over the pandemic have worked dramatically for him. He's gone back to that typical moderate steady as she goes, kind of bland Ontario governance that Dalton McGuinty rode to great success, that Bill Davis rode to great success, and that apparently is what Ontarians want. You and I have talked about this before. Maybe Jason Kenney could have looked at Doug Ford and figured out that when you're in your face and you're courting populism and you're courting anger and you want, you know, you're, you're promising aggressive solutions and you don't get them, that can cost you. Hey, Pierre Polyev, are you listening? Maybe you should pay attention to this, too.
1: Uh, well, we can talk about that. Uh, David, are there lessons for the conservative leadership race? You know, uh, tomorrow is the Ontario election. The membership drive for conservatives is is the next day. The Bank of Canada unveils a 50 basis point interest rate hike today. Pierre Polyev immediately tweets about it. See, uh, now they're paying for Justin Trudeau's inflation. By the way, he'd wanted them to have inflation rates higher earlier, uh, which is weird. But but are there lessons for the conservatives federally?
8: Well, there's always a lesson. And the lesson is, you know, don't write checks your butt can't cash. Uh, this lesson is never learned because every candidate for leader makes a Faustian bargain, which is to say they're going to promise all kinds of things uh, that they simply can't deliver on. They're going to try to have it always possible because the goal is to win the leadership. Well, it's like the dog who catches the car i mean now you've got it what are you going to do with it especially if you've made promises to the car you can't keep and i think that's what's going to happen with polly if he wins he simply can't keep these promises he can't deliver on the policies that he's well such as they are that he's promising and then what right Um, it, it puts him at a disadvantage to win the election it puts him at a disadvantage at keeping the party together and can i say something nice about stephen harper
1: do it, do it. Just say whatever you want. It's a free for all. As a
8: lefty, I just as a lefty, I'm not I'm not particularly allowed to. But every so often, I break the, the cardinal code and do so. Uh, one of the things that I will give credit to Stephen Harper for was managing the Conservative Party, which is not an easy task.
10: <laughs>
8: you know, looking back on Stephen Harper, I, I was younger when I criticized him. And I look back and say, "Oh, I see now why he did it," because this is what it looks like when you don't do things that way. Um, I don't think, you know, Polyev has what it takes for many people do to keep that party together. And he's not running a leadership campaign that indicates that he does. That's going to come back to get him, too. And uh, and so one of the takeaways is here, you know, you've got to have a plan of what you do after you win. I'm not convinced.
1: Mm, That's interesting. I I mean, look, uh, Sharon. Liberals have a long tradition of staying in a very bad marriage for a long time and never leaving. Conservatives have a divorce tradition. You know what? Let's split up and get back together. What lessons do the Liberals learn from this?
9: I think that, listen, there's a lot that is coming out of this federal leadership race, which is, I would say, not great. Um, And it's actually pretty much a gift for the Liberals right now. Everything and anything Pierre Pollard is doing is, I would say, breaking the conservative party up even more every single day it is turning into this 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 garbage conversation about normal people versus the elites and it's like I I personally don't find it helpful I find it to Hmm. be it's to me and I'm not trying to be um harsh towards people who attended the freedom convoy although there was a lot of people who were very questionable and um
1: Okay, h- hang on, hang on. I'm going to pick this up. i got to take break because we're, we're on syndicated across the country. Sharon, Tim, David, hang in there. I want to finish this conversation and get to the handgun ban freeze as well. Stay with us.
0: The politicians and pundits to account. Now more from the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk
1: Network. The War Room is here. Sharon Carr, former deputy chief of staff to Bill Morneau. Tim Powers, chairman of Summa Strategies, marathon runner. David Mosgrab, contributing columnist for the Washington Post based in Ottawa. I think I called the Harlem Globetrotters opponents the Washington Wizards, just the generals. I think General. I a mean, uh, gosh,
8: imagine <laughs> they're that? just that bad.
1: They're just they're, 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 no, and nobody corrected me. They're like, yeah, the wizards yeah. suck too. No, it's the generals. Um, so we talked about the Ontario election. Doug Ford. How big will the win be? I don't know. Uh, will Andrea Horvath uh, maintain her job? If she loses, she's out. If they lose official opposition status, it's devastating. And then, of course, there's uh, Stephen Delhu, Del Duca, who, um, look, if he can leapfrog over the NDP and and become the official opposition, even if he loses his seat, he'll survive. But if they're remaining in third and he loses his seat, even his job's up for grabs. So Ontario could see a political shift on the opposition side. In the meantime, I want to get to the Justin Trudeau handgun freeze. I'm going to start with you, Sharon. After the horrific tragedy in Uvalde... The liberals have long talked about a ban. They never really talked about a handgun freeze, but now they've come up with this half step. Does it do anything? Does it actually solve the problem when with illegal guns with gangs? Does a national handgun freeze do anything, or is it just the recognition that you got to start somewhere? And this is a long journey.
9: I think it's exactly that. Like, listen, I think the timing of it is is pretty raw, given what's been going on in the U.S. And we know a lot of the U.S issues around guns and things like abortion tend to cross borders here to Canada because there is there is some relevance but we have a very different situation here in Canada and I think that the freeze on handguns is a step forward. Um, listen, every, like, municipalities have been talking about this, provinces have been talking about this, and I think the Fed just kind of came in and said, listen, we're going to do it. Now, I would love to see how far they're willing to go, specifically when it comes to illegal guns. Like, they really, really need to address the issue of illegal guns coming across border because that is one of the single most, I would say, um, prominent ways that they are getting across the border. But it's, it's a step forward. They just need to keep going further. And I know you're going to hear A lot of folks from the conservatives specifically saying that we are going after law-abiding gun owners, but it's not that. It's I think one of the big steps in it was the red flag against if you say been like have some sort of record or domestic violence, you basically get your gun taken away and you can't get it. Stuff like that is important. Um, It just we need to make sure that they continue to go further on it because as we see, as populism is rising, people feel that they can do certain things that they shouldn't, and um, we just need to like guns kill people. We just need to get rid of them.
1: Tim. I, I, let me push back a bit on what Sharon's saying. I, I think conservatives agree that okay, we can get behind a red flag law, right? Uh, if someone is a potential threat, they're 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 saying I'm going to shoot up a school on the on Facebook, they should get their gun taken away. I think they can they can also believe in the domestic abuse. You know, if you're stalking, yep. get your gun away. I think conservatives actually line up on that stuff, and I've spoken to a lot of conservatives about it. It's the big headline, which is a, a handgun freeze, where a lot of conservatives say, you know. It, I, you know, if you, you, you this is the wrong solution to the problem. This is this is going to do nothing. The fundamental issue is illegal guns. What's your take on that?
7: Well, there's a what and a why, right? So the what in this problem is 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 somewhat access to weapons. But as you just rightly described, this is only partially addressing the what. And look, the liberals mouth the right words around dealing with smuggling and trafficking, but. Let's look at one very specific example that we used to hear about for 20 years straight, 30 years straight, smuggling in and around Cornwall and all of the uh, uh, alleged illegal weapons that come across that border, we hardly hear about that anymore. Is the task force still operating down there? And if you talk to law enforcement office, uh, officials, as uh, many of us do, they will say to you that this still remains a huge problem. But where's the money? Where's the resources? What is happening to deal with that? That, that That's a big issue. The second is the why why are people committing all of these heinous uh, acts of violence? Most of them are males, younger males engaged in all of this. There's no why in any of this. And, you know, until we get at the why addressing the what is helpful but we got to get at the why i don't know what the answer is to getting at the why but it's damn important
1: you gosh i remember stephen harper david remember he said don't commit sociology when you're getting at the why yes. the what is is the illegal gun so tim's just committed this in a sociology david what, what's your take on the national handgun freeze is it one of these big picture that in the end we're not going to see stats fall
8: Well, uh, allow me to be briefly cynical and then less cynical. That'll be the arc of the comment. Uh, The cynical bit says this is a way to introduce something that the liberals have wanted for some time. They talked about it in the last parliament. They talked about it in the election. This is the sort of thing they've been moving to. But this allows them to take a moment and use that moment to advance the policy, as politicians often do, and at least something for later. For instance, an election. That's the cynical take. Uh, I I think on balance, the question is, okay, well, is it going to produce anything, yes or no? We don't know for sure. Uh, I think Tim is absolutely right about the the what and the why distinction, but part of it is sometimes you need to take the best leap you've got with the policy you've got and see if it works or not. If it doesn't work, you've got to have the humility and the grace and the intelligence to say, okay, we need to do something else or we need to change this or we need to repeal this. But I don't think there's any reason not to try it while also admitting that we need to get at the deeper sociological, cultural, uh, gendered drivers of these things. And we also need to get at the the plain problem that this is also an international problem, because as others have said, including on the panel, we've got guns coming over the border. We've got to stop that, uh, which is going to require international cooperation. So I think this is worth giving a shot, but we have to be open to the fact that it might not do what the liberals claim that it's going to do.
1: It is interesting, Sharon. The decriminalizing small amounts of, of fentanyl, on one side, Cri- you know, capping handguns. I, I got a series of texts from from listeners saying, "I don't understand this government. You're decriminalizing drugs like fentanyl, and you're trying to criminalize my legally obtained and safely handled handgun. What's what's happening here? I mean, I understand things on the surface aren't that simple, but is that a problem for the liberals?"
9: I don't think it's a problem on the mainstream. I think people are very uncomfortable with the topic of legalizing small amounts of drugs. It just, for some people, it just doesn't sit well. And I can understand that. But there are bigger issues when it comes to guns versus drugs. And like, I don't think you can do one or the other. I think that you can do both at the same time. And it's just a matter of how do we, how do we change our policy to make it better for society? And how do we, like, how do we get, get the guns out of people's hands? And I know people will think it's counterintuitive to now legalize small trace amounts of drugs, but it's, it's actually quite different. One is actually about people who are getting drugs that are dying from them on the streets in Vancouver specifically, whereas guns is more of a targeted issue, I would say.
1: Last word to you, Tim, Tim on this. I, I, I mean, what are the politics yeah. of this? Are the Liberals trolling so the, so the Conservatives bite on the gun issue, which the Liberals would be more than happy they see it as a sword issue?
7: Yeah, they're doing that for sure. But I mean, on the drugs, what's what's fascinating there, look, there's a whole addiction argument that can legitimize what the Liberals are doing uh, on decriminalization. But then there's a full-blown admission that we just aren't putting resources into enforcement. It, it links in both of these issues. They, you know, if enforcement was there, perhaps they would, and the resources for enforcement were there, perhaps they'd have a different view on how they look at the decriminalization of, of drugs. And that creates potentially an opportunity for the conservatives. But it all gets down to spending money. And uh, does the money exist to address some of these other issues that can be solved through enforcement?
1: Well, uh, gents and lady, uh, Sharon, Tim, David, the war room is in. I got to say, I don't think there's going to be big surprises tomorrow in the overall picture, but I think for the Liberals and the NDP tomorrow is going to be an absolute contest, riding by riding, and the vote splits will be fascinating there. And I think Doug Ford's, uh, can you imagine, who would have predicted this uh, years ago? Doug Ford in the Ascension, Jason Kenney out. I mean, a tale of two conservatives. Fantastic. 2022. Yeah, it's just weird, man. I don't know anything. That's why I love politics. You never can know anything. Uh, Sharon, Tim, and David, welcome, Sharon and David. I really appreciate it. Timmy, uh, welcome back. Thanks, buddy. My pleasure. Thanks. All right. That, uh, that's the war room. There's lots going on. Can you imagine? Doug Ford's going to be four more years, and Jason Kenney's going to be wandering the political wilderness. Uh, lots more coming up on the program. Here, Here is what's coming up. We've got this amazing story about a researcher who says, Her avatar was sexually assaulted in the metaverse. What? You can explain that when we come back.
0: Time in your car doesn't have to be time wasted. Join the evolution of talk radio. This is The Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk
1: Network. Can you help me understand this? Because I do not get this. So I need your help. I want to know where you stand on this. 1-855-633-1010. 633 1010 or 71010. Like This to me seems so weird. There's a researcher... And she's playing some game called Horizon Worlds Platform. So basically what they do is they go into this, what's called the metaverse, it's like a virtual thing. And they create a character, I guess. And this, this researcher went into the metaverse, it's the big new thing, a virtual world. And she said her avatar, her character, was sexually assaulted within an hour. Well, others just watched, and she wrote about this in this. Uh, Some of us, this is a place called Metaverse, another cesspool of toxic content. Since so she was harassed, Meta, which is owned by Facebook's Horizon Worlds virtual reality platform, she said there was threats and verbal abuse and racial and homophobic slurs and 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 and, and rape. But basically says, this is the world that we're about to enter. No rules. And and it's so real that you feel like you're there. That it, it feels like it's almost a, a, a true violation. And then you think to yourself, is, is this a, like I get how real it must feel. And Meta says, w- we're going to address these problems and we're going to moderate. Con- and I get it. Content's got to be moderated. But like, is that like playing Doom? And you say I worked on my character, and someone shot me. Yes, you've entered a universe. This is not real. Like your character was sexually assaulted in a fake world, but it's it's just a fake character. Like when I was a kid, I used to punch my brother's teddy bear. Did I assault the teddy? Now, I get it slightly different. These are people, oh, we care about this, we live in this, but I just, I'll just say this, Ukraine. If we are worried that people are getting assaulted in the metaverse, we got too much time on our hands. We got people getting assaulted in the real world. You got kids getting killed and women who have been raped. And that's what. Now, someone said to me, I had this argument. Someone, oh, but if they're doing that in there, do they want to do it in the real world? No. No, they can play act. People who watch pornography doesn't mean they want to do all that stuff in, in the real world. People who play, shoot them up in video games don't become killers. I know people say that. That's not true. People who listen to heavy metal music, you know, it's not heavy metal music doesn't cause mass murders. There's no data on this stuff. So help me out on this. What do you stand on this? I I just think this is not the way we need to talk. It's not sexual assault. Now there may be rules in the real in this metaverse. I get it, but really one eight five five six three three ten ten or seven ten. This is so weird. Evan, her avatar was sexually assaulted in the pretend world, huh? Did someone else's avatar use the wrong pronoun? Ha! Look, no, this was like a violent sexual assault, but they're, 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 they're not real. You know, when you mistake your virtual presence for a real presence, what are you going to demand a, a legal, legal, what if you're emotionally hurt? It feels real. So what? I mean, I get it. It's supposed to feel real in the virtual reality, but You can't enter it if you're going to, you know, don't enter virtual reality if you think that you're going to be, I mean, I just don't get it. Now, maybe they're violating the rules of the game. Metaverse has a game and that this person has violated it. That's up to Metaverse to clean it up in the same way that on social media, we want some standards. So you don't want racism and violence. And hey, I get that. There should be standards there. Maybe Evan, we should stop pretending games are reality. Kevin says, we have enough problems in the real world. I do not care about your fictional representation. I'm kind of with you on that. Paul, what's up?
5: Yeah, hi. Good good afternoon, uh, Evan. This is crazy. I mean, like, uh, either it's brainwashing or whatever the case may be, but, I mean, there should be a, you know, there's laws about uh, all these sexual things here on the Internet and everything. Now, they should start doing that on video games because I think, If you start giving this to young children and they start believing
1: that's reality. That's it. Well, look, video games, this is virtual. I don't know if you've ever done a virtual reality. I've done these things. The the, the Oculus thing. It feels unbelievably real. Now, it may feel real, but it's not real. This is the thing that we have to keep distinguishing. It may feel real. It may may think you're real, but it's not real. It's make-believe stuff. Now, I do- doesn't mean that because, you know, it's like saying, well, online, someone says something racist to you. I understand there should be standards, but the idea that you're on a VR headset and everything feels very, the sense of, quote, being there, I understand that, but it does it make this a, uh, this assault, you know, is there any consequence to it? No, I think meta should deal with it, but like sexual assault online, I just, it's so hard to deal with. But, yeah, I think it's going to have consequential elements on kids, Paul. Uh, Pablo in Toronto, what's up?
5: Grand Theft Auto is probably one of the most popular games in the world. And um, literally, all you do is you go around and kill cops and do drugs. And, you know, uh, it's it's just nefarious activity all around. But I don't see people going around portraying uh, those events out in the real world. You know, I think uh, people just. Look at games, and then they just freak out about what you can do on them. It's a fake universe; everything about it is fake. Just it's fake. Leave them alone. Can I tell you something? Though, like,
1: I first of all, I agree with you fundamentally. But when my kids, Pablo, started, I, they didn't. They never really got into Grand Theft Auto, but they did play it a bit, right? You know, you you see it. So I was like, okay. They're like, Dad, you want to play? Yeah, I do. I hated Grand Theft Auto. I'm just telling you straight. They were because as I a joke, it, it they're like they're like either. running down because, uh, people. It's just dumb. Yeah, like they take a car, they're like, hey, this is hilarious. And they, you know, they run down they, they run over people. They beat up people. Like it was bad. I, I honestly I you know I'm not a video game freak guy. I don't think this is gonna corrupt my children. But can I tell you? I hated every minute of it. I think not like it is encouraging every bad thing in the world. I just cannot believe how, what a, I hated it,
5: you know? And and like, I I see the appeal of it. You know, it could be an outlet for somebody feeling frustrated about their day and they go to that game and release all their frustrations in that game, which can be a good thing. And it's not happening in the real world. But at the same time, like it's, to me, it was just, it was dumb. It wasn't my cup of tea. I'd rather play something a little different, but I could see the appeal for certain people,
1: but not for everybody, right? Uh, Pablo, I agree. Now, we got Pablo. Hang on. David David disagrees with me, so I want to get someone that disagrees. Uh, David, what's up? Go for it.
11: Hi, Evan. Uh, Don't often disagree, but this time I will. So I'm black. If I had uh, an avatar who was black in the game and somebody came out with the N-word or, you know, came out with a noose and hung my avatar, I would still take it really personally because that person is directing their hatred at me through my avatar. So if somebody does that raping of an avatar to a woman, it's essentially the same thing. They're just dismissing her as a person and treating her like, you know, a rape victim or whatever. So So
1: I'm with you. You're you're raising a really good point. So, and I got a minute here. But my question is, so what do we do about, like, I think there should be standards online. So you and I agree. Hate online, um, that kind of, I agree with that. But... How do we handle it? Is this, a me- is this meta has to handle this, or you're not allowed to rape someone? I agree with that. Isn't that well, a meta I'm
11: problem? Not, I'm not sure. I mean, several years ago, they had that kerfuffle about a big MMORPG, right, where they had uh, women who were being routinely raped and then people who were being murdered, basically, in the game. Um, and so it's just a, it's just a sort of a signpost of where society is at the moment, and it's not a good place. And I, I don't know the
3: solution I just yeah you know the, what david changes, I think
1: man. I gotta give you credit I, I I think you know you you're raising a really powerful point to be candid about standards and do you want that and you just dismiss it that it's all fake so anything goes I think we've got to have standards there I just I'm not sure how to do it but i I really appreciate the call uh, let me let me take a break I've got to do that we got another great story coming up.
0: Decisions are made, we report. Here's Evan Solomon.
1: Think about things. This is a remarkable story. There's a disease called progeria. Never heard of it. Very rare genetic disorder. And it basically means that someone who is 15 year old, like Adalia Rose, who died this year, she was a person who you probably many millions of people followed her on on youtube looked as if she was in her 80s she's 15 years old but she looked she'd aged so quickly because of some genetic mutation so so she her mind was the mind of a 15 year old her body was the body of like an 85 year old and the question is can anything be done now 12 million people followed her on facebook and Dr. David Liu, the director of the Merkin Institute at the Broad Institute and a professor at Harvard University, says maybe maybe we can help through gene editing and, 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 and we can change our DNA. And the implications of this are, are massive. So Dr. Liu joins us now. H- how are you, sir?
10: Good. How are you? Thank you for having me on the show. It's
1: a pleasure. Tell, tell us for a bit about Adalia Rose. Like, I, I, I never really understood this condition. Tell tell what did she have? So, Adalia had
10: a single-letter misspelling—one DNA letter out of two sets of three billion—in uh, which a C that most of us have instead was a T. That's it, through no fault of her own, of course. And as a result, she suffers from a devastating—suffered from a devastating genetic disease called progeria, which, as you mentioned, causes rapid aging eventually cardiovascular issues, and early death, unfortunately, where the average lifespan is about 14 and a half years old.
1: It's incredible. And, and, and by the way, other elements, right? Uh, loss of hair, dwarfism, I mean, like, uh, like right. really. And, and it's such a tiny, but it's very uncommon, as I understand.
10: That's right. And in fact, there are about 6,800 known ways that simple DNA misspellings in our DNA, in our genomes, can cause genetic diseases. You've heard of many of them, cystic fibrosis, sickle cell disease, progeria, ALS, Huntington syndrome, Tay-Sachs disease, et cetera. And so a longstanding goal of the sciences and of medicine has been to develop ways to fix these misspellings in our DNA so that we can better study, better understand, and hopefully, treat or maybe even cure genetic diseases.
1: When you say misspellings, Doc, I just want people who are listening to understand that because as I understand it, and you're the expert here, there are four kind of bases of DNA. There's an A, a C, a G, and a T, and they mix together to form our DNA. Is that right?
10: That's right. Your genome is really a a strain of two sets of three billion of these letters, A's, C's, T's, and G's in a specific order. you got one set from mom and one set from dad. And the tiniest kinds of misspellings, swapping one letter for another or losing a few letters or inserting an extra letter, these are all known to cause, uh, have profound effects on our health and to cause, in many cases, these devastating genetic diseases.
1: And now there's a thing where the, they call it gene editing, since the, I guess the metaphor of letters, because you're naming these aspects of our DNA, the adenine, uh, the cytosine, all the, the A, the C, the G, the T... You can edit this. Tell me about the technology to gene edit and what that could mean.
10: Right. So, so gene editing as both an aspiration and a science has been around for decades, but recently it has been really catapulted um, into uh, both advanced science accomplishments and uh, medicine and public consciousness by the development of CRISPR as a gene editing technology. So in the interest of, of time, maybe I'll just say that, um, There are older and newer ways of editing genes. The older ways all involve cutting DNA, using a pair of scissors, molecular Hmm. scissors, to cut DNA at a specific position. And cutting DNA can be very useful for disrupting genes that are causing problems. But if you want to, to fix most genetic disorders, you need to not just mess up the gene, you need to precisely fix the misspelling. And so that's what our lab and others have have been working on. We've developed technologies that are called base editors and prime editors. Those are two types of gene editing technologies that are programmable, meaning you can decide where in the genome you want to make the change, and they precisely correct the misspellings that cause these genetic diseases. But For how example, would you, how
1: said, would you, yeah, how would you correct it if, it, like, I, I can see you can maybe do it in one gene, but how would you do it in billions of genes? Like, isn't the misspelling, you know, throughout every gene in the body?
10: Yeah, so so you need to deliver these molecular machines that precisely fix the misspelling into lots of cells in the body. You don't need to deliver them into all the cells. For example, in mice with progeria, uh, which have the same mutation as the mutation that uh, progeria human patients suffer from. Uh, we programmed the base editor to fix that T that causes progeria, turning it back into a normal C. And when we used a virus to deliver that base editor, that molecular machine that fixes the mistake, into into the mouse, we could largely rescue the symptoms of the disease and greatly extend the lifespan of these mice.
1: So for someone who has progeria, for the net, na- I mean, sadly, all this is for... for um... Adalia Rose, she died earlier this year, but what could happen in the future for someone who's got one of these diseases?
10: Yeah, so it's important to realize that all of this exciting new technology has to go through both animal studies, which have now been done in the case of progeria, and human clinical trials, which have not yet started, before they will be deemed safe and efficacious for use in humans. We have to determine whether they are safe and efficacious through clinical trials. So it will still be years before uh, progeria patients have the opportunity to benefit from this kind of treatment. However, we've never before had a way of correcting the root cause of a disease like progeria instead of just trying to treat the symptoms. And for many of these genetic diseases, you can't effectively treat the disease just by treating the symptoms. So we think that treating the root cause of the disease by right. fixing the misspelling that causes the disease is the way to go.
1: And, and could, could this, this could impact many other diseases, I imagine.
10: That's right. I mean, the most exciting aspect of modern gene editing is that all of these agents are programmable. What that means is that you can simply change a small piece of RNA that's used to program where the machine goes in the genome, and you can fix other kinds of misspellings. So you can use these base editors or prime editors, in principle, to fix many of the misspellings that are known to cause these thousands of genetic disorders.
1: But could you, is there an ethical question? Could you use it to make people stronger, smarter? I mean, is there is there the eugenic side to that? Is that an element?
10: Yeah. I mean, it, you know, the ability to, to change our genomes is a fundamentally powerful technology. So there are certainly opportunities for misuse. In the case of most of the questions that people are worried about, like the ones you asked, we really don't know what genes, if if modified in certain ways, would result in a smarter person, for example. So I'm, I'm less concerned that that's going to happen. And, of course, the, the barrier to doing all of this work is still very substantial, which makes me optimistic that they right. won't be used for vanity purposes anytime soon.
1: David Liu, the uh, director of the Merkin Institute uh, at the uh, Broad Institute and a professor at Harvard, what a fascinating uh, breakthrough and journey you're on. Thank you for sharing it with our listeners across our country. Thank you, sir.
10: Thank you for your interest in our work. That's yeah,
1: amazing. I love seeing that. I love peering over the edge of where medical technology is going. Imagine your life editing genes. I I love that stuff. Okay, we got to take a break. I will be. Uh, I'll see you tonight on Power Play, and I'll see you back here tomorrow, Election Day.